This is the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the show for real estate investors, stock traders, and business owners. We help you keep more of what you earn and protect what you've built. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to Tax Tuesday. My name is Toby Mathis. And I'm Elliot Thomas. And you are watching Tax Tuesday, where we are bringing tax knowledge to the masses. So welcome. So we have a fun one. Let's go over some of the house rules for everybody who's been to a Tax Tuesday before. Welcome back. If this is your first time, then these are kind of the rules that we operate under. Number one, you can ask your questions live via the Q&A feature. You're going to see something in Zoom. If you're on Zoom that says Q&A, that's where you ask like your couple sentence questions. And if you have a comment, put it into chat. So like a comment might be, hey, Sherry's in Puerto Vallarta. Where are you sitting right now? What city and state? Let us know, and I'll be able to see it in chat. If you're in YouTube, uh, there's a bunch. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say where everybody's at, but we have hundreds of people on here, so we'll go through that. Elliot here has the YouTube live stream going, and so he can sit there and yeah, read your, your chats and make sure that they're being answered. And I have the Zoom over here on my left, so if you see me look at my eyes over here, it's because I'm reading a screen over here. So we have Hackensack, Austin, Texas, Waterford, Wisconsin, Carmel, California. A lot of California, Ventura, Castaic. I don't know if I said that right. Castic. How do you say that? What do you think? Castaic. Castaic. All right. Houston. There we go from Baltimore, Maryland. I have a bunch of properties, Lee, in Baltimore. There's Faith. Uh, hey, Toby, how y'all? Uh, and d- d- shoot right on by. Make sure that yeah, somebody answers Faith's question. She had a, uh, looks like she had a comment there. And more Baltimore, Carmel, Eye of the Storm in Boston, Washington, but just arrived in Texas. Uh, we got more California. We got people from all over the country. Anybody that's uh, responding in the uh, YouTube? Not kind of quiet on the YouTube right now. All right. And the other thing is we will answer your questions while you're on. We have right now, uh, let's see, uh, Patty, Dana, Dutch, Jared, Kurt, Ross, Tanya, and Troy answering questions in the background as well. We have a bunch of tax attorneys and accountants and CPAs that answer questions for you during these events. Does it cost you anything? No. If you have a question during the two weeks where we're not broadcasting, since we do this every other week, by all means, email us at taxtuesdayatandersonadvisors.com and we will get you a, a response. If it's a your specific situation and it's more than just answering a general question, you're going to need to become a client. And it's really easy. Platinum's probably the easiest service where you can have unlimited discussions with our attorneys and you can write questions to our accountants. We say write because we want it in writings because we're going to respond in writing because we don't want there to be any confusion. We cite things where necessary, but we want to make sure that because you're going to ask the same thing three times over during the tax year. Otherwise, we make sure that we're putting it in writing. If you're platinum, it's only 35 bucks a month. Really simple. If you become a tax client where we're doing tax prep and bookkeeping for you, a little bit of a different uh, answer there. You'd have to be engaged with our department, but uh, our folks can absolutely walk you through that if you want to become a client. We do have a bit of a waiting list, so especially during tax time, we're not going to be able to help you this tax year, but by all means, you can put yourself on the list and see if we can uh, help you out probably next year. I mean, earlier than next year, but for next year's taxes, for 2023 taxes. All right. And uh, it's fast, fun, and educational. Yeah, we like to give back and we like to educate. Now, I'll just tell you, I'm already seeing out of the corner of my eye a lot of questions going into the, the Q&A. I have a whole bunch of people here answering questions. They're doing the very best they can. If you ask and we have 50 people piled up, it's going to be a minute. We'll still answer your question. We don't leave here until we have your question answered. So do not worry. If you're, for whatever reason, you ask a question and you're saying, hey, it's been it's been 10 minutes. It's because we're getting through. It's first come, first serve. We're answering these questions as quick as we can and uh, make sure that we help you. I just want to give a shout out. We got Warren from Jamaica. Warren from Jamaica? Yeah. Is he on YouTube? Yep. Nice. Warren from Jamaica. Welcome. And uh, my daughter's down in Antigua right now, so uh, in the Caribbean. All right. Here's the questions that we have for today. Now, these are questions that somebody emailed in. Elliot here is grabbing all the questions right now, and uh, you grab these on what, Friday? Yeah. And, uh, and we just answer them during the, the next hour. We're going to go through them, and we're going to give detailed responses. In the meantime, you're going to be asking questions and clarifications and all that fun stuff. We'll make sure that we're answering your other questions as well. But we usually have, do you know how many you grabbed this time? Uh, we went with about 11 or 12. 
Yeah, so, so somewhere around 10 to 10 to a dozen, and we'll get through them today. So let's go over. Let me see which, which screen I can actually read. If I have a company and want to loan money to another company using a promissory note, but I don't want to charge them interest to do so, are there any tax impacts to my company? What is the recommended way to do this, if so? Question mark. Good question. You're not going to be really happy with the answer, but uh, we'll <laughs> definitely go over it. The IRS is on to us, right? They're, they're looking at everything. How can, they, how can they get money? Do you need to pay both capital gain tax and estate tax for inherited stocks? Great question. Does real estate appreciation will be restarted for 30 years after inheritance? So it sounds like, let me make sure I can, we'll, 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 we'll re-clarify this, but i make sure I'm reading this right. Yeah, so will real, real estate, the appreciation be re-depreciated, basically, once you get an inheritance. So we'll go over that one too. Uh, other question, I have an IRA-owned single-member LLC that has invested in three syndications. Two of the three have losses over the last several years, which means it's kicking down passive losses. It doesn't mean you lost money. One was sold last year and has profit, which is fairly common. Do you use a 990T to report, report both losses and profits? I don't have to report profits or losses on my 1040, correct? Great question. And we will break that down for you. Elliot, probably more than me. <laughs> all right. I'm going to give you all the hard one. Right. Does the holding period for real estate start on the acquired date or the placed in service date? So if bought in November 2020 and placed in service, and I'll break this down for you guys. Don't worry. Placed in service March 2021, sold December 2021. Is this long-term or short-term capital gains? Great question, and I'm sure other people have hit this uh, as well, so we'll make sure that. When will we recoup the loss from a wash sale if we're no longer investing? Great questions thus far. Good job. <laughs> we get like 500, and we just grab randomly, usually just, just 12. Oh, Patty says it's 12, so there we go. With bonus depreciation or when bonus depreciation goes away, what will be the process for cost segregation? How is it calculated and how much will be allowed to be deducted at what time or intervals? So how is it calculated and how much will be allowed to be deducted at what times or intervals? Good question. We'll break that down. I have a 501c3 that I started with Anderson. Woohoo! Thank you. Kareem and his team are killing it, by the mm -hmm. way. It is ridiculous. The average wait time to get a nonprofit exemption certificate approved by the IRS is right around seven to nine months. And we've been getting them in some cases in a matter of days. The, like Kareem used to work for the IRS doing the approvals. So whatever he's doing, he's getting it done so fast. All right. I was wondering if you were to donate appreciated stock to the charity, how to donate that to the charity properly? And how do you record as a personal donation with appreciation? Does the charity need to start a brokerage account to receive the stock? All great questions as one big old question. It's a great question. Should I set up a C-Corp LLC for land flipping business, even if I have just started no deals yet? Or should I start with a pass-through first and then change to a C-Corp once I get more volume? Good questions. And uh, for the flippers out there, this will be good for you because it'll break down some concepts. When you buy a bigger van for the business, do you depreciate it or show it as an expense in the year you buy? Where do I find a list of business expenses that are 100% deductible and other, and other expenses are not? If there is a maximum number of LLCs that I can use for the IRC 280A deduction, or is there a maximum number of LLCs that I can use for the 280A deduction? I have two LLCs and I was wondering if I can take the deduction for both. Also, I have a nonprofit and was wondering if I could also have meetings for my nonprofit and the fee for using the space would be a donation from my LLC. Great questions and we'll break all those down. How do you like these ones today? I mean, you picked them. so you must I like be. them. <laughs> these are good questions. We, we, this gets our juices flowing. So when there's a lot of different uh, variation, it's, it's a, lot, a lot of fun. How do adjusted gross income AGI levels affect capital gains? Is it true that AGI below 76,000 will pay no capital gains? Great question. I'm opening a new IRA that will be managed by an IRA with custody TD Ameritrade. It will be funding new IRA from existing IRA, so it sounds like a rollover from the same custodian. I have a Wyoming LLC Anderson just set up. Should I open the new IRA in the name of the LLC, and will it be a problem moving from funds from personal IRA that is titled it with my name? So I definitely want to answer that one. Hopefully you're on today. We'll be able to thwart any issues here and keep you from 
making any mistakes. All right. If you guys like this type of information, if you like the Tax Tuesdays you watch today and you say, oh boy, I wasn't aware that they have done this. What are we on? 191 or something Mm -hmm. like that. So we're just under 200 episodes. We'll be at 200 episodes here before the end of the year. How do I go and look at some of the older ones? Uh, Well, they're on my YouTube channel. It's really easy. Just go to YouTube along with, I post about three videos a week. If you like educational content about business, tax, and asset protection, I I got you covered. So just go in there and subscribe. Click that little notification bell that says turn on notifications. And what it'll do is it'll let you know when I post a new video. That's it. It's not going to spam you and not going to do anything crazy. And just because it's fun, here's a slide that says the actual link if you want to go there. But I think Patty put it into chat. If you're on YouTube, you're already there. You don't have to worry about it. All right. Folks on YouTube already are probably sitting on, there's over 500 videos, guys. Been doing this for years. Just, uh, just started 25 years ago. Overnight success in 25 years. (laughs) All right. So, Elliot, let me ask you this question. Mm -hmm. I have a company and I want to loan money to another company using a promissory note, but I don't want to charge them interest to do so. Are there any tax impacts to my company? What is the recommended way to do this if so? Well, I think the first thing we want to analyze here is that we are dealing with related party transaction here. Uh, One LLC owned by the client going to another business or a related party actual individual. And what, that, what if it is the client LLC to another client LLC? Related party. So what that means to us in the code says if it's over $10,000, we got to charge interest. That's what it boils down to. Yeah. If you, and if it's a third party, you're going to have imputed interest period. They call it imputed interest. And what they do is they, they make you recognize the interest, even if they don't pay it. Kind of stinks, right? Yep. So if you have an LLC and I have LLC and I loan you money, no matter what it is, right? Is it? Is there a $10,000 limit? You, no. Yeah, yes. well, I'm going to have to have interest on that. So I, where would I find the least amount of interest I could charge? It's probably going to be the applicable federal rates, what we just say is AFR for short. And that's pr- uh, produced by the Treasury Department mm-hmm. on the IRS website every month. We also t- uh, tend to use the blended rate, which is a rate for over a 12-month period, which is just an average of them. That comes out in July of every year. So that would be another uh, option to use that sometimes if forced. Kind of use one or the other often in practice. Yeah. So if somebody loans you money, period, there's a tax implication to it if you're not a related party. If you are a related party, then they say basically anything under ten thousand is kind of a no, no, no harm, no foul. Mm-hmm. But if it's over ten thousand, you have to impute interest on it, even if it's a related party. If it's to me though. And I have one LLC loaning money to another LLC, and both are disregarded to me that I just loan money to myself, and you don't have to do any interest, although I would. I'd probably still document it as interest, because all you're going to have is a, an interest deduction, and, and mm-hmm. it's going to offset any of the, uh, any of the, the tax is going to be neutral regardless. There you go. But you want to have the transaction sometimes for asset protection purposes. But the answer to this question is if I have a company and I loan to another and I don't want to charge them interest. Yes, there are tax implications. You might be looking at imputed interest if it's a if it's somebody a third party or if it's a relative or anybody else. You're you're looking at it an interest if it is greater than ten thousand dollars. Now, I just point on for the, uh, the other viewers out there. What I like about this question is the author of it recognized we got to have a promissory note. That's critical. You always want to have something documented like that. Yeah, the way I look at it is your company's out here marching along doing its thing, but it only knows what you document. So it only knows the story that you write for the company. So, and we've seen this happen over the last few years, especially with COVID. We, we lost a lot of people, unfortunately. And you would see the difference between people who documented and people who didn't in the aftermath if something happened to that individual. And so you kind of want to be able to say, like, how would anybody know what's going on if I don't document it? Well, if I loan money between companies, even if it's my company, I should keep a documentation, some sort of record, a promissory note showing like if you're doing loans to shareholders, even out of a company or shareholder loans to a company, you want to document those on at least an annual basis and make sure that you're keeping some sort of written record. So we're one in. Yes. (laughs) All right. Do you need to pay? We'll break this one into two. Do you need to pay both capital gains and estate tax for an inherited stocks? Well, uh, typically, if you, have an, if you inherit something, you're not going to pay any tax because of the, the uh, 12, approximately $12 million uh, lifetime exclusion. If 
the gift was over twelve million, the inheritance over twelve million, you would just in this case you would just pay tax. We, you're going to receive stocks at stepped up basis. So if you sold them, probably not much tax, but it would be capital gains tax. It will not be that the estate tax, unless the estate didn't have anywhere to disperse that stock and it had to got stuck with the bill, so to speak, then it would be estate tax. But that's very rare because usually you have a pour over will or something that would get all the assets out of that estate to where the recipients will get stepped up basis. And uh, there's very few states that charge an inheritance tax. Yeah. I think there's four. Yep. Most of them and, gone away. Yeah. Most of them gone away. There's an estate tax. So when I die and I give assets away, my estate gets taxed if it exceeds a certain valuation. And right now it's close to 13 million for me and a spouse, you're up to close to, you know, over 25 million. Right. So if your state's below 25 million, you can just go, whew, I don't have to worry about that. Right. Some states have an estate tax that's lower. I think Oregon's like a thousand, a uh, million dollars. Mm-hmm. Anything above, they will hit it. So there is an estate tax on the estate. But what happens to Elliot? Let's say he's the beneficiary and he inherited a bunch of shares that I have. Those step up in value to the fair market value on the day that he gets it. And then the question is, does he reside in a state? That is going to subject him to an inheritance tax on the receipt of that. Even if you don't sell it, right? They're just going to say, hey, you inherited money. We want you to pay tax on it. There's only, again, very few states do that. The capital gains, though, is non-existent under that circumstance because it stepped up. So let's say I had a million dollars of stock that I paid $100,000 for. So I have $900,000 of capital gain built into that stock and I die and I name Elliot, my heir, that stock revalued on the date of my passing at the million dollars. So Elliot gets it. It's still worth a million bucks and he sells it for a million dollars. How much tax does he pay? Zero. A big whopping goose egg, right? So he doesn't pay any tax on it. That's why that's called a step up in basis and it works for any capital asset. So it works for real estate and it works for stock. So you would not have to pay the capital gains. You might be looking at an estate tax, but it's the estate that pays the estate tax. You as an individual, if you inherit it, you're only looking at inheritance tax in very limited circumstances. It's highly unlikely that you're going to, like if a fraction of a fraction of a percent that you'd get hit with anything. Uh, number two, does real estate appreciation will be restarted for 30 years after inheritance? I think what the, the question what they're trying to get to here is, will you get to be able to depreciate again at 27 and a half years if it's a, a long-term rental? And yes, you will. Yeah. So remember, the, the, it's a capital asset. So the basis just stepped up. So let's say, again, I'm going to make uh, Elliot my heir. It's my estate. I own a property that I, buy, I paid $100,000 for. Now it's worth 500000 And so I was depreciating the improvement value, not the land. We never depreciate land, but the improvement value during my lifetime, I pass away. Elliot gets that property. It's worth $500,000. He starts to redepreciate it, the structural value, the improvement value. Again, he gets to redepreciate it. That's how messed up this is. Yeah, at that stepped up level. So it's a win-win for everyone involved. And it gets better. So let's say that during my lifetime, I bought a property 100 and went up to 500,000 and I borrowed 200,000. I never paid tax on the 200000 that I borrowed against that property. And then I die. Elliot still gets to redepreciate it at the 500000 I have no recognition of any tax gain on that, on that money that I took. And it was because if somebody says, is that because it was debt? Yes. That is because you don't pay tax on loans unless they're forgiven. But we're not forgiving anything. We're just dying at some point. And that's why whenever I see people gifting assets over to their heirs, gifting real estate to their kids when they get older. And I'm like, so, so, whoa, 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 time out. Don't do that because you're taking away their ability to have a step up in basis, right? So again, same scenario. I paid a hundred, it's worth 500,000. I gift it to my kids. Their basis when I gift is a hundred thousand and I depreciated it a bunch. So they, they're going to have that recapture if they sell. All you have to do, if you have real estate and you're holding it in your name, before you pass, like all you have to do is borrow against it if you need money and then pass away, but don't give it to your heirs. I saw that happen with a multi-million dollar property and it was a shocker to four kids. Dad had owned a, a building for close to 40, close, I think it was between 40 and 50 years. The basis was next to nothing. It was worth millions of dollars and 
the accountant just totally hosed him. <laughs> like they ended up having massive amounts of recognition of gain and, and recapture as a result. And they were like, oh my God. And he gifted it the year before he passed away. Somebody says, does the step up and redepreciation occur if the property is in an LLC? Yes. It's a flow through entity. So it's just going to, it's, it's still going to step up. Works out great. Okay. I have an IRA owned single member LLC. So the single member LLC is owned by an IRA that is invested in three syndications. So this it's, it's called a checkbook IRA. You'll hear them called, uh, and that's when an IRA is isolating its liability by using an LLC to invest in real estate. In a syndication, to me, it's a little bit of overkill because the syndications are almost always an LLC as well, but no harm, no foul. It's single member, which means it's disregarded to the IRA. So the easiest way to think about this is eliminate the single, single member LLC and just imagine that the IRA owns those three syndications. Two of the three have had losses over the past several years. So chances are it was like apartment buildings or whatnot, some sort of syndicated business or whatever, and they generated losses that passed through to the IRA. One was sold last year and has profit, so they had capital gain more than likely. Do you use a 990T to report both losses and profits? And I don't have to report profits or losses on my 1040, correct? Correct. You don't have to report it on your 1040 because it's all in your retirement plan. And generally speaking, a retirement plan doesn't have any taxable profits or losses. It doesn't recognize any losses. It's just inflows and outflows of cash. Unless? Unless we have UBIT, unrelated business income tax would be one example of where we might have to do some reporting of taxes. Or UDFI. <laughs> UDFI, which is a subset of UBIT, but uh, that would be if it's... They're using loans. Yeah, exactly. You're using debt to create that gain. You're going to have a ratio of how much gain was sponsored, if you will, by the debt. And so we would have to report that on the 990T. But something Toby went over, I think it was the last time we uh, did this. If we have some passive income, does that not help offset or something of that nature? I can't remember. Not necessarily in this, in, okay. in, in this situation. What you can do is depreciate. So if you have UDFI, you can still take depreciation to offset any tax that would occur inside the IRA. And he, here's, here's what I'm talking about. By the way, I'm just going to say this. If you're out there watching this and this is you, roll that IRA into a 401k and UDFI goes away. 401ks don't have to worry about unrelated debt financed income. IRAs do. What are we talking about? A retirement plan gets a loan to buy a building and there's money being made. That would be taxable because you used debt to generate the income. And if you're doing syndications, 99% of the time they're using debt. If you did that in an IRA, you're going to have the 990T, which is just a excise tax. It's basically saying, hey, I need to pay tax on this portion. But in real estate, almost always we can eliminate because you have those losses. It's flowing losses. Well, those losses would offset any of the income. So you wouldn't have any income, period. Maybe some of the gain might be attributed to the debt, in which case you might have a small portion. But again, your, your losses get unlocked. You'd still use those losses against the gain there's a good chance you're not going to have any tax on this regardless. Just make sure that you know when you have debt and you're using it inside a retirement plan, you got to be careful. If it's an IRA, it's going to cause a potentially a taxable event. If it is a 401k, you do not have to worry. Somebody says you can't roll an IRA into a 401k. Of course you can. Uh, the only IRA that you can't roll is a, is a Roth IRA, but you can roll a traditional IRA into a 401k all day long. And then they said, how? You open up a 401k and you roll the money from the IRA into the 401k. Or you take the money out of the IRA, they're going to issue a 1099R, right? And then you're just going to deposit that money into your 401k. And it's within 60 days, it's a non-taxable transaction. And somebody says, is there no uh, UBTI tax in the 401k as well? No, there's still UBIT, uh, but there is not uh, UDFI. So great questions, by the way. And I don't mean Jacqueline, I, I don't mean to laugh. It's you absolutely can roll an IRA into a 401k. We do it all day long, every day. People do them all the time. And here's, you know, here's a good reason why you do it. If you're using financing, if you're using debt, but also because I have, let's say, let's say Elliot and I each have an IRA. Let's say we were a married couple and we each have an IRA or I have two traditionals. He has an old 401k from a previous employer and another uh, IRA, we could set up one 401k and roll all those into one account. 
and now we have control of it. Instead of having four different IRAs, we could roll it all into one account, and that's how you do it. Fun stuff. We'd never make it. Nope. All right. (laughs) Just kidding. Does the holding period for real estate start on the acquired date or the placed in service date? So if bought November 2020, placed in service on March 2021, sold on December 2021, is this long-term or short-term capital gains? What say you? It's going to be long-term. We're going to go for the date where you close. That's the, where the holding period starts. Easily get confused because you hear us all the time talk about when we place in the service and we start taking depreciation. That's a different story. That would be your March date. But that's not what we're asking here. We're talking about when does the holding period start? That's going to be when we purchased in November. Yep. So the holding period of any capital asset, whether it's personal property or investment property, starts on the date that you acquire it you start to depreciate investment property when you place it into service, which is when you list it, it's ready and listed to be rented. The best example I can give you is I own a house, I live in it for a few years, and then decide to make it into a rental property. I'm still long-term capital gains no matter what. And then I convert it to a rental property. I can't depreciate it when it's my personal property. I get to start depreciating it once uh, I put it into service or make it available to be put into service. And uh, by the way, you could do that to do a 1031 exchange, believe it or not, and your 121 exclusion, which is like, Mm -hmm. we see this on people that have had their houses run up in value. Let's say you bought a house for half a million dollars and now it's worth 1.5. You're married, you you sell it and you're like, I'm going to have a million dollars of capital gains and I only get to avoid half of it under section 121. So I'd have $500,000 of capital gains. How do I avoid it? Well, you turned it into an investment property before you sell it. And then you 1031 it into more investment property, but you get to use your 121 exclusion. So what would happen is your basis would be moved up to the 500 that you paid for it. You'd get a $500,000 121 exclusion. So you'd have a million dollars in the replacement property, even though you got 1.5, it's not taxable. That's all you have to do. So what you do is you move out of your house, make it into a rental. I I suggest keep it as a rental for like six months, rent it to somebody you know, or rent it to somebody that's going to be gentle with your house. And then sell it. You could, and you could wait up to three years. By the way, like you, you don't, you don't lose your 121 exclusion when you lo- move out. You have to live in the house two of the last five years. So if you've been living in it for a while, at least two years, you have three years to to sell it once you make it into a rental property. And then you could actually convert rental properties into your house too and use 121. It's just if it was part of a 1031 exchange, like I just explained, the IRS says you have to wait five years. So uh, don't worry, this stuff gets a little uh, a little bit into the weeds, but uh, you just have to talk to somebody who knows what they're talking, you know, knows what they're doing, and they'll be able to give you your scenarios. Somebody also asked, uh, uh, Tina, I'm going to answer your question that was came in through chat. You guys can't see these, but I'm just looking at it. And can I withdraw a Roth IRA to buy a house? Since we're talking about houses, we may as well talk about it. You can always take the money you put into an IRA, a Roth IRA, back out because you paid tax on it already. So if I'm putting in six sixty five hundred dollars this year. Uh, I'm over 50, so 7,500 because you get a, you get the makeup and you do that for a few years. You got a bunch of money that you put into your Roth. You've been funding it for 10 years and you need $50,000 down. You could take that out anytime you want. But if you want to avoid paying tax on the growth in an IRA, uh, Roth IRA, then you're supposed to wait five years unless you're using it. I think it's $10,000 to purchase a primary residence. So you can take money out to buy a house and you can absolutely do that. Thought you had to take the money out of your Roth for a first home purchase. You might be right, Danielle. We have to look and see. Uh, we, would, we would just make sure that we follow the rules. There, there we go. So there might be a distinction. I know you can take it out for a home. Maybe it's first home, but uh, we'll take a look. All right. When will we recoup the loss from a wash sale if we're no longer investing? So we wouldn't run into a wash sale in this instance because you sold the stock. You take your loss. It's only if you buy back that stock or a similar security that you would run in afoul of the wash rule after, within 31, 30 days of it. Uh, so we thought this would be, or I thought it would be a good question to kind of go through the whole wash sale. What exactly is it? And where is it applicable? And hey, how what it is would, it? <laughs> wash sale just says if you sell a, a, a stock at a loss or security at a loss, you uh, and then go back and buy back a similar uh, stock or the same stock within 30 days, then you can't recognize the loss. Now, what happens to that loss is it just gets the basis of the replacement stock that you bought. So when you finally sell that stock, then you'll get, a, you'll get the effect of taking that deduction. But in this case, our, our questioner 
uh, has it. They, they sold or took a loss and they never reinvested again. So we don't have a wash sell situation here. We just have a recognized loss. So in English, <laughs> let's say I owned ABC Bank stock and then all hell broke loose in the banking industry and it dropped and it lost 40% of its value. So let's say it was worth 100. Now it's worth $60. So I sell it. That's a, hey, perfect. I'd have to see what I paid for it. Let's say I bought it for 100. So I bought it at the top of the market, which would be my luck, right? So I, I paid a, a, say I owned 100 shares and I had $100 per, so what is that, $10,000 that I paid and I sold it for uh, 6000 6, So I have $4,000 of loss. The clock starts ticking. I have 31 days from, the, from that date that, I'm, that, I'm, that I just sold it, basically 30 days, so the 31st day where I cannot buy that same stock back or a similar stock back and count the loss. So let's say that I sat there, waited. Two weeks later, I'm like, oh, the banks aren't all going to go out of business. And I buy it back at six, the same $60 a share. Or I spent 6,000 bucks. I don't get to take the $4,000 loss. I own the stock. It's called a wash sale. They wash the sale. It didn't occur because you bought it back. In order to avoid the wash sale, I wait until I'm 31 days past the sale date, then I buy it back, and then I would get to keep my $4,000 loss, and I have the new stack. So you just have to be patient in that circumstance. If you want to work around, I just said 100 shares, I would buy, instead of buying the shares back at $6,000, I'd buy an option, probably in, in the money, so probably to buy those shares at... Uh, uh, what would I do? Probably 30 bucks or something along those lines, maybe 40 bucks, maybe 50 bucks, whatever, whatever the market was allowing me to do. And I would buy an option, which means the $4,000 loss would attach to that option. One option equals hundred shares. And magically I just covered my position. Now I can go buy the $6,000 with the shares back. And I, I don't have to worry. I've already covered my, my, my wash sale is attached. Now that loss is now part of the the option. And then I sell the option afterwards and I take the loss. So because it added all that loss into that option. So that's all you do. Like there's always a workaround on most things. So wash sale loss rule uh, only applies if you buy it back. If you do buy it back, there's a tricky way to attach it to the shares that you sold, which is to do an option instead and then buy back the shares. Um, I know it gets complicated. Some people says, whoops, but I'm just giving you verbally. That's exactly how you do it. In the end, the end deal is if you have losses on stock, you're thinking about buying back, run it by a tax person. That's why platinum exists. So you can ask a question. So we could tell you what the rules are. So you could determine whether or not it's a good idea for you to buy the shares back. If you buy it back, you didn't lose anything. You, like you're not going to get the loss, but you own the shares again. It's just like you never sold them. So it's, uh, there's worse things that could happen. All right. Uh, speaking of worst things that could happen, there's always stuff going on in the world with asset protection, people trying to take people's stuff. Every time I drive down the freeway here in Vegas, I see so many lawyer billboards. They're always looking for people so that they can try to extract money out of folks. Make sure you don't have a target on your back. Clint Coons, my partner and I, we teach the tax and asset protection workshop where we're going over LLCs, corporations, land trust, Wyoming statutory trust, personal resident trusts. We go over the different tax, cost seg, how to, how to accelerate depreciation, 168K, 179, all these different provisions that can help you as a real estate investor. It's absolutely free. Let's look at the dates. We have April 8th and April 22nd coming up. We do have a four-day live event that's going to be First day is going to be Infinity uh, Investing, which is uh, going to be a lot of fun on Thursday. And then Friday through Sunday is Tax and Asset Protection. Uh, we're going to do a live event in Orlando. It's going to be uh, uh, kind of a hoot. We did one of those in December out mm -hmm. here in Las Vegas. I think we had four or 500 people out here. Uh, we sold out of that event. Uh, we, I think we have close to the same capacity here. We'll probably sell out of this event. So uh, jump in there and make sure that you're signing up if you want to come to a live event and immerse yourself in all things tax and asset protection and a little bit of investing. It's always fun. And you're going to be around a bunch of cool investors. I always say that those types of events, the, the cool stuff occurs 
in the evenings and in the hallways and the afternoons and during the breaks where you get to meet people who are doing what you're doing. And sometimes it can be tough to find like-minded people in this world that are actually interested in growing their investments. As somebody says, Vegas was fun and very informative. Thanks, Don. And did you have fun? That's, that's the bigger one. Did you enjoy it? And did you, did you get to meet a lot of cool people? Were you sitting near cool people? Uh, wait for Don to respond, see if I can't get something in chat. But I mean, that's, to me, that's, there's always instructors at the front, but sometimes the best, the best instructors are the people that you're sitting next to. I know uh, Kurt and I had a great time at the event. Got to meet a lot of clients, answer a lot of questions. Got a lot of questions we had to research. And so that helps us uh, sharpen our tax information as well. Hey, you see, we've been doing this a long time. Mm. You still get questions that make you go, huh? Oh, yeah. And I, we get them every time. It's, it's, I always get them. I'm always scratching my head. I'm like, gosh, darn it. And then sometimes I realize I looked at it. It was 10 years ago. And I, I forgot. Tell the tax advisors, it's a humbling job. It'll always tell you how much you don't know about tax. You get that one question that hits you. It's 20,000 pages of code right? or whatever it is. <laughs> and there's over a million pages of interpretations by the courts. Mm-hmm. And the courts, the courts, you know, they may decide something and then they change the, somebody says, gave away a lot of macadamia nets. Mark? <laughs> yes, you nice. did, Mark. Thank you. Um, but there's always some fun stuff that you're always going to learn. There's no way you're going to stay on top of it. So the best thing that can happen is when somebody asks a question, you go refresh it. Again, lots of fun. So come out to our Orlando or at least uh, visit us on one of the virtual events. They're absolutely free. They're 9 to 4 on uh, Saturday's Pacific Standard Time. So if you're willing to spend some time, we'll make sure that it's worth it for you. All right. When bonus depreciation goes away, what will the process for what will be the process for cost segregation? How is it calculated? How much will be allowed to be deducted and what time or intervals, sir? So let's just say we don't have bonus depreciation. That's no problem. We still can do cost segregation, which is just an alternative, as Toby will point out, the actual correct way to, to deduct depreciation for uh, an asset. It'll be broken up still into five, seven, 10, 20, 27 and a half year property. So we don't have any problem there. We're still going to deduct it. It's just how much is going to go into that five year property pile, the seven, the 10, 27 and a half. And then you would just simply take that dollar amount divided by the five years. Again, if it's a five year property, and that's what your deduction will be for that year. The only difference is that with bonus depreciation, we were allowed to de- immediately expense up until re- to, through 2022, 100% of our bonus depreciation, really nice tool to have during those time periods, mm-hmm. but we are losing that starting to go away. So the, the loss of depreciation is just going to slow down the amount that you can deduct, but it doesn't change anything for the cost segregation depreciation that was already in play uh, long before we had bonus depreciation. Yeah. The easiest way to think about this is for me is there's a house there's the land, and then there's things like carpeting and fences and driveways and shrubbery, trees, appliances, cabinets. All of those have different useful lives. The land, we can never depreciate. Land improvements, we write off over 15 years. Carpeting, we write off over five years. Appliances, over five years. Uh, cabinets might be five or seven. And so you're giving it a useful life. When you do a cost segregation, that's all you're doing is you're defining what that useful life is. Then there's a section of the code called 168K called bonus depreciation, where it says, hey, anything under 20 years, you can write it all off in one year. Or this year, you can write off 80% of anything that has a useful life of less than 20 years in one year. And you're like, oh, okay. So let's say that I have five-year property that's worth 10,000, seven-year property that's worth 5,000, 15-year property that's worth 10,000, so that's 25,000. I could write off immediately, boom, today, 80% of that, whatever that equals. Let's see if I could do math in my head, 22,000. So I could write off, (laughs) so I could could write that off like right away. Is it 22 or is it 20,000, 80%? I'm gonna go with whatever he says. Whatever it is. I can't do math in my head. I suck at it. I'll just put zeros on the end of everything. Uh, let's see, 20 times 25 is five. So yeah, it's 20. So 20,000. So I'd get that immediately. It doesn't mean I can't write off the rest of, the, of that money, the extra 5,000. It just means it's being written off at its useful life at five, seven, or 15 years. So you didn't lose it. You're still going to write it off at an accelerated pace. It's just that bonus is boom. And that bonus is so big, especially if you have a use for losses. So Elliot and I could get together 
we could buy a building. It's a million dollar building, $100,000 of land, eight hundred or $900,000 of the building. We do a cost seg on it. And Elliot has no other passive income and he gets this big fat loss. Let's say he gets a $200,000 loss. I get a $200,000 loss and I'm a real estate professional and it wipes out my W-2 income and I pay no tax. It doesn't matter. Like we're, it's, it's still a cost seg. It's still taking bonus depreciation. The difference is it was useless for him. It was very useful for me. That's why you always calculate these things and see whether or not you have an appetite for them. Um, time interval, it doesn't change. You still get to, you're just going to get 80%. Next year, it'll be 60% unless Congress does something. Can't see this Congress doing anything. No. <laughs> Some worthless uh, trivia on that. The company that, that uh, went through the court systems uh, to and won against the IRS on cost segregation, my sister actually happens to work for him. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which which uh, company or should I even say? Uh, I can't. Rem- I honestly can't remember. It's, it has initials. That's all I know. It's a medical company. But they, but, but they went and they fought. And they, they did. Uh, they bought a hospital and then that's and they broke it all out. And, and here's why you do that mm-hmm. because when you have a business and you're self renting, it's no longer passive. So like if I buy a if I have a medical practice and I buy my own building, it's not passive loss. I could use the depreciation to offset my medical practice income. Same thing if it's a dentist or a mini mart. It doesn't matter if you're self renting. You can group that activity. There's no longer the passive loss limitation. So I imagine that if it's a hospital, they were yeah. looking at millions and millions of dollars of tax benefit mm-hmm. and they didn't want to wait 39 years. And they paid their Anderson attorneys to get in there and fight for them. That's it. <laughs> yep. All right. I have a 501c3, a nonprofit, that I started with Anderson. I was wondering if you were to donate appreciated stock to the charity. How to donate that to the charity properly and how do you record as a personal donation with the appreciation? Does the charity need to start a brokerage account to receive the stock? What do you say? So we certainly want to set up a brokerage account in the charity because when it receives that stock, I have a place to put it. So uh, that would be a good idea, certainly. You can donate it. It will be at the fair market value. You may have a limitation on the amount of deduction the current year. You're limited to 30% of your adjusted gross income for appreciated property. If it's a public charity. If it's a public charity, yep. So that, you know, those are concerns that you can get into the detail with your tax professional, but certainly you can just donate uh, the stock over. I assume the actual steps you'd have to go through, I imagine you would work with your brokerage account and say, hey, I'm just... I've done this. Yeah. So I could tell you exactly what I did. So I had stock that I forgot that I had. It was a private company, right? And it went public. (laughs) My old boss. Yeah. Then somebody smacked me upside the head and said it's worth, it was, it'd gone up a lot. And they were like, what are you going to (laughs) do? I was like, crap, I had to go find my certificates and get them placed with the broker because it was, again, it went private to public and uh, one of those just dumb things. Uh, So anyway, and I was like, well, I didn't really expect it. So why don't I just donate it? So the value of those shares, let's just say a hundred thousand is a deduction. And let's say I was able to use that full deduction and I'm in the 37% tax bracket. So it was worth $37,000 to me as a tax savings. I don't have to recognize income. I gave the shares away to the charity, which meant I had to open up a brokerage account in the charity's name and donate those shares. I had to get a letter from the charity that says uh, nothing was given a value and thank you for your donation. And here's the fair market value and the time. Uh, ordinarily you have to get an appraisal, but if it's, uh, if it's stock and there's a, and it's readily available, it's the, it's the price on the day that you transfer it's opening price. So you get that nice deduction. It's great. If I had sold the stock, I would have had capital gains and I could have donated the cash, but I would have had capital gains. This way I didn't have any income recognition and I was able to get the tax donation. I've done that with real estate too. I'm one of those guys that likes to, I don't like giving cash. I like giving appreciated assets because it gives me uh, two bangs for the same buck, right? I want to be able to do something right. I want to give somebody a valuable asset, but I'd prefer not to pay tax on it first. I'd rather let the charity sell it if they want to and turn it into cash. At they're, they're exempt, so they don't have to pay any tax. So I like that. The only other issue, just to get into the weeds, is if you haven't held that stock for at least a year, then it doesn't matter what its fair market value is. It's going to be the basis that you paid. If it's less than a year, it's it's short-term capital gains. So if you have appreciated stock, you've held it for nine months, then you donate it. It's, you're not going to get the fair market value. You're going to get the basis, what you paid for it. So if you paid a thousand dollars for shares that are now worth five, 
and you donate them, you're not going to get the 5,000, you're going to get the 1,000 if it's short-term capital gains. So uh, just keep that in mind when you're doing this. Typically, I can't think of a single circumstance that I've seen somebody donating an appreciated asset that they haven't held on for quite some time. A lot of time, it's fully depreciated real estate. They may have had the property for 30 years, and they're like, Toby, I don't want to sell it because I don't want the gain, but I don't really, like, I don't know what to do with the property. I'd kind of rather just dump it, but I don't want to pay tax on it. The recapture and the capital gains would be annoying. So it's like, great, give it to charity. And uh, you can give that to charity, and then the charity can do what, what it will with it. Sometimes they keep them as rentals. Uh, sometimes they say, thank you very much, then sell it. But regardless, uh, you would get an appraisal under that circumstance, and then we'd have to report the sale if it's within two years, I think it is, uh, because they want to make sure you didn't have an inflated appraisal. But it should be, you know, if you're using an actual appraisal company, you'll be fine. All right. Don't you guys love this stuff? Yeah. I don't know. I find it extremely... It's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. I love stuff like that. I'm always like, oh. A lot of different angles you can look at things from, and it's like a prism. Yeah, somebody says, you just got to repeat and repeat. <laughs> Go back and watch some of these. We, yeah, we, so somebody says, I do. That's Patty. Patty, you don't count. <laughs> Love you, Patty. But All right. Should I set up a C-Corp LLC for land flipping business, even if I have just started no deals yet? Or should I start with a pass-through first, then change to a C-Corp once I get more volume? Great question, but you want that C-Corporation from the get-go. You want to do that. As me, immediately when you start thinking about the business idea, I would set that C-Corp so you can start building up losses and expenses in that C-Corp. So when you flip it and you have that gain come in, you're automatically offsetting against that gain. There's a lot of things uh, that you can do to get some of that cash out of there from a C-Corporation, medical reimbursement, accountable plan, corporate meetings, just a whole lot of good that can happen by getting that C-Corporation set up right away. Yeah, you want to do it before you buy. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure that your name's not in chain of title. I have seen lawsuits for folks that were just just owned and flipped. And you think that there's nothing to it. They were barely on it. And then they get dragged into a lawsuit 10 years later. They were in chain of title. And then all they have to do is allege that you misrepresented or concealed a defect that you knew or should have known. And the next thing you know, you're dealing with litigation for something. It's much easier to use an entity and then kill that entity periodically. A lot of times, people that are in the business of flipping, they'll set up an entity per flip, and then they'll dissolve it once the flip is done. That way, they can do this. I'm done with liability. The entity is gone uh, that did it. So from a tax standpoint, whether you're an S-corp or a C-corp, there's so much flexibility here, guys. Like I don't want to misstate anything, but if I'm a C-corp, that's how all corporations start. I can make an S-election. And I usually do so by the by the 15th day of the third month after I set up the entity. So generally speaking, it's in the, within the first 75 days. But if I screw that up and still treat it as an S-corp, I can go back and get retroactive relief when I file the return. So like I look at this and say, it's not a gun to your head. Don't feel like you have this pressure on you. The most important thing is to actually be successful at your business. So if you're doing the land flipping business and you don't have deals yet, Make sure you have that entity set up. That should not be your main concern. Your main concern should be buying things that generate profit. So be focused on the right things. And if you use the right vehicle, it'll protect you from an asset protection standpoint and give us a lot of flexibility from a tax standpoint. And a lot of this, we can we can look at how you are at the end of the year, make some decisions then too. Absolutely. Right. What's the next one? Let's see. Oh, the bigger van. Mm-hmm. When you buy a bigger van, I want to know how big your first van was. Like I had a 15-footer. I wanted a 20-footer, right? (laughs) When you buy a business, a bigger van for your business, do you depreciate it or show as expense in the year you buy? Where do I find a list of business expenses that are 100% deductible and other expenses that are not? Well, first of all, for the van itself, whether you're going to do, how you're going to depreciate depends, of course, on the size. If it's over 6,000 pounds, et cetera, you probably got bonus depreciation or a lot more of it. It may not be 100% anymore, but we probably still have the 80% going on. If it's a smaller vehicle, uh, then you might be limited to how much you're going to deduct each year. But this is for the Could, business. Couldn't we 179 it? We could. We yeah, we got the new thing coming back in, and it's been around, but we've been ignoring it. 179, that just says uh, it's the same concept. As long as you're profitable in your business, you can take a deduction up to like, I think it's a million and so in assets this mm-hmm. year. Uh, so that would that would be another option. 
but uh, depreciate or show as an expense, either way, it's going to be in the year that you buy. No question about that. And, and this assumes it's 100% business usage, too. Mm. So if you buy a big van and you're only using it 20% for business, that goes out the window. It's got to be more than it's 50% or more. Somebody says, isn't there a 6,000-pound uh, rule? Yep. That's what he's talking about, the gross vehicle weight. It's on the inside of the door when you open it up. And if it's more than a 6,000-pound gross vehicle weight, then it's equipment. It's not a passenger vehicle anymore, so this van would likely qualify. And you could write it off 100% in the year that you acquire it. That's why you always see people telling folks to buy stuff at the end of the year. Hey, go buy your Range Rover or whatever it is. They never mention the part where it's like, hey, personal use is going to be taxable to you. (laughs) And you better make sure that you don't drop below 50% or whatever you wrote off is going to be taxable to you as well. Like it's nasty. So just make sure that this is business equipment. Otherwise, don't get too fancy. I just prefer people if if they don't know or they're using partial use for business, just do the old reimburse for mileage. But in this case, it looks like hey, I'm getting a bigger van and uh, I want I'm, I'm using it for business. Hopefully it's 100% for business. You'd get 100%. Now, where do you find that list? There really isn't, right? There's anything that's ordinary and necessary for business is 100% deductible. And it's usually based off of the business usage of it. And it depends on the type of business you have because S-corps and C-corps are treated differently than sole proprietorships on some items, for example, like a cell phone. I have an accountable plan. I have a cell phone. I can reimburse myself 100%, even if I'm only using it 10% for business. If I'm a sole proprietor, not the same rule. I only get to write off what my business usage is and I have to track it. So uh, where do you learn that stuff? The tax toolbox or come to the tax and asset protection event or spend some time on my YouTube channel. Two of those are, are free. The one that's not is the tax toolbox, but it has, how many videos are in there? A bunch and we're going to add more. Yeah, we do. <laughs> we do something called TaxWise Workshop for our tax clients. How many different deductions are we going over now? Uh, approximately 40, I think, strategies. Yeah, 40 plus, 50? It's, it's 40 plus, and, uh, and we've done this for years where we break it down. Here's the, ta- here's the rule. Here's the code provision. Here's how you use it. It is long. Like You guys are doing these. Yeah. Like I, di- I did one that I thought was going to last a day. We went into the night. <laughs> it's about eight hours. There are, uh, regarding the, at least the types of uh, vehicles, there are lists out there that will, you can Google and they'll show you all the vehicles that qualify over 6,000 pounds. But as far as, as Toby was saying, just regular business expenses, well, it's 100%, exp- as long as it's used 100% for business. Yep. Somebody says, buy a Cybertruck. You could buy you a go. Tesla yeah. X. They qualify. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. so heavy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then somebody says, hey, can I convert a personal vehicle to business? Yeah, of course mm-hmm. you can. You can actually reimburse yourself too. Is there a maximum number of LLCs that I can use for the IRC 280A deduction? I'm going to ask you this, but we're going to have to explain what 280A is mm-hmm. to the people first. I have two LLCs and I was wondering if I can take the deduction for both. Also, I have a nonprofit and I was wondering if I could also have meetings from a nonprofit and the fee for using the space could be a donation from my LLC. Right. Well, 280A is a provision that actually comes under a section that is dedicated to not letting you deduct personal expenses in your house, particularly. Yet Mm -hmm. they come up with the 280A and says, well, look, if you rent it out for to anybody for any purpose less than 14 days a calendar year, we'll go ahead and let you take that income tax free. And you don't have to uh, pay any tax on it. So it's really nice, as you often hear the the history of it, it came from the Augusta. We call it the Augusta rule. It comes from the, the big golf tournament down there. Your IBMs, your AT&Ts were coming down, flocking down there, and they want, they were strong-arming the IRS and Congress to let them be able to deduct that business expense. Congress, so, so the locals would rent them their house. Yeah. Let's be real. They'd go down there for a week, and they'd pay $30,000 a day in some cases, and they, they didn't want that to stop. If you made that taxable to somebody, they might say, forget it. Yep. So Congress comes around, says we're 14 days or less, don't pay any tax on it. And Airbnb loves it too. That was like one of their (laughs) things. But here's the deal. 280A subsection G2 is the actual provision. And it says that a a, a taxpayer may rent out their residence. Doesn't say their primary residence, but a residence for less than 15 days a year and not have to include it in their adjusted gross income. It does not say per lessee, right? It's not per whoever I lease to. So it, however many LLCs doesn't matter because you could have four or five, six, seven, you could have 14 different companies 
I'll go in and rent your house for one day. And as long as the aggregate is 14 days or less, you don't have to recognize it as income as long as it's a residence. And it could be a secondary, it could be a secondary residence, but it's just you're limited as the taxpayer who's receiving those funds to 14 days or less. You go to 15 days, guess what? 100% of everything that you received is now taxable, not just the 14 days included. So you stop at 14, boom. And yeah, you could rent to your nonprofit. You could rent to your, you know, your C-Corp, S-Corp. It should be a corporation. It should not be a partnership or a sole proprietorship because uh, it would just, they, they would cancel each other out. It would be, it, it, it wouldn't, wouldn't give you a benefit. It has to be a separate taxpayer. Yep. And uh, yeah, the, the nonprofit certainly can. We are a little bit uh, careful on the nonprofit. The whole idea of you donate $10,000 to your nonprofit is that the nonprofit can use it for nonprofit purposes. So we wouldn't want to have a $12,000 280A bill on that to take it all right back. I think that would probably go afoul of how the IRS and Kareem would look at it. You know, what you could do is you could say, hey, I'm going to rent it. What you do, and I'm not going to pitch the the tax toolbox, but it's in there. There's Mm -hmm. actually a a bunch of uh, documentation that we've been using for over, I think it was in 2001 that I started using it, 2000, 2001. So over 20 years, it has an easy list. You call three locations locally that are commiserate with this, with your space. Like, hey, I'm going to call a hotel and see, hey, if I want a meeting room that has refreshments, access to a kitchen, has internet, and I want to be able to have that meeting there, you're allowed to pay yourself the same amount, you know, because that's a reasonable amount. You get three quotes and then you can do that. Uh, with a, with your nonprofit, it would pay you that money in theory. So let's say you did it for $700 for the day and it gave you 700 bucks. You don't have to report that. You could donate that 700 bucks right back and you would get a $700 donation. That's the methodology that you use to allow yourself to get a deduction. You can't deduct something that you didn't receive. You just have to make sure that you receive it. It's non-taxable to you. Same thing as if, like, let's say you bought a bunch of pizzas for the charity and the charity said, hey, Elliot, thanks for the Thanks for the pizzas. Here's a hundred bucks. And you said, Hey, no worries. I'm going to donate that hundred bucks, get a receipt for the hundred dollar donation and do it that way. You know, I wouldn't donate the pizzas. Fun stuff, right? (laughs) We've been talking about 280A for decades, right? How do you, uh, how do adjusted gross income levels affect capital gains? Is it true that if AGI is below 76,000, we pay no capital gains? Commonly misunderstood question. Actually, AGI doesn't have anything to do with this. It's taxable income when we talk about the brackets for capital gains. Mm-hmm. The 76 is an old number. That's from several years ago. It's adjusted basically every year. So it's approximately 83,000, I think, this year. So if your total taxable income is under 80-some thousand, you won't pay any tax on that capital gains. But that includes all your income, your W-2, your interest you earned, whatever. This is the fun stuff that we do. During the tax and asset <laughs> protection event, I break down the three different types of income categories because it's, it's, it's active, passive, and portfolio income. And capital gains is portfolio income. It sits in this weird category that says, if it's short-term, it's ordinary income tax bracket. If it's long-term, then it's taxed at 0, 15, or 20%, depending on your income. So the type of income we're talking about is long-term capital gains. You held it for at least a year if it's a capital asset or it's a qualified dividend from a like a publicly traded company that's paying you a dividend or it's a futures contract where 60% is long-term capital gains and 40% is is a short-term but long-term capital gains are taxed according to your taxable income and like Elliot just said I think this year for a uh, for a married couple I think it's $89,000 or below you're in the 0% category so if your AGI is below $76,000, it tells me you have tax appetite. If you have unrealized long-term capital gains in your account, I'm telling you at the, before the end of the year, sell it up to that $89,000 limit if you're married filing jointly, and then buy the shares right back because you just reset. You just stepped up your own basis for zero tax. Makes your income go up a little bit, but it's at zero. Like This is the best thing. And then if you sell it later, so what? You have, a, you have a higher basis. So you're going to have to pay less, less tax on it. I deal with that every year. We yep. deal with that. At the yes. end of the year, I'm always screaming at people, hey, you have a tax appetite for long-term capital gains. Your dividends, you should be investing in companies that are paying dividends. You should be selling your long-term stocks that have appreciated and reset them. Just sell them and re- buy them right back. There's no such thing as a wash sale gain rule. It's only for losses. 
So you do that and it works out great. Uh, would long-term position of 1256 contracts be not taxable if taxable income is low enough? The long-term capital gain portion would not be taxable. The short-term would be at your ordinary bracket, and it depends on what your other deductions are. Because you get a standard deduction, and if you're below the standard deduction, like you wipe that thing out, it would be at zero. And then, Faith, you asked, do you have to file an individual return if you make less than $10,000? No, it's below the standard deduction. Standard deduction for an individual is what, eight, uh, 13,000? 13,850, I believe this yeah, year. Yeah, 13,850 this year. So yeah, you wouldn't have an obligation to file unless you want a refund or something. But we run into that kind of situation. Maybe someone sold their business, took a year off. If they have a lot of uh, you know stock that's appreciated, sell 80,000 plus, don't pay any tax on it. Yep, we see that. We see the people that are real estate professionals and have a year where they're like, oh, I got down to zero. And I'm like, don't be at zero, Knuckles. Yeah, like, right? come on. <laughs> Let's use some of that. You're in the 10, 12% yeah. area in zero for long-term capital gains. It's okay to pay some tax. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you're not going to get another shot at that. You have these big losses. You see these guys get themselves down to zero. And I'm like, mm-hmm. A, you're going to have trouble with loans. B, why ignore the fact that you have a bunch of free money? Like you could, again, long-term capital gains, you're not going to pay tax on it. You could sell 80 grand worth. Zero. Zero. All right. What do we have? I am opening a new IRA that will be managed by an IRA with custody TD Ameritrade. I have no idea what that means. Is it's it just me? Custodian or? is right. a, it's TD Ameritrade. No, but a new IRA that will be managed by an IRA because one IRA is not managed by the other. It's not a... Uh, so you're, what it is is I have one IRA with Ameritrade and I'm opening up another account, which I don't know why you would do at TD Ameritrade. They're both custodied there, which by the way, in this banking crisis... I did a video with uh, Stefan Whitwell, and we talked about the difference between the insurance on bank accounts versus custodial accounts. You don't have exposure on the custodial account. They usually, um, like 99% use a third-party custodian. The only guy that I've ever heard of that self-custodianed was Bernie Madoff because he was stealing everybody's money. But uh, if you're using a custodian in a brokerage house, your money is sitting there for you. It's not like on a bank where they it becomes a, an asset on their balance sheet and they pile it all together and write loans at 90 times that amount. That's why your money's so much safer at custodial accounts. But you have two custodial accounts. I'm going to fund a new IRA from the existing IRA at the same custodian, which I don't know why you would do that. I'm sorry, I'm just stepping all over you, but I have a Wyoming LLC Anderson setup. Should I open the new IRA in the name of the LLC? And will this be a problem moving funds from a personal IRA that is titled with my name? Yeah, so this caught my attention because we got some potential wrong acts going on here. Nonetheless, we do have the two IRAs. You can roll one over into the other, either way, whichever it goes. I'm not worried about that. But what caught my attention was, hey, I have this Wyoming LLC I set up with Anderson. Great. But you can't just have that connected to a retirement plan. You, your, your IRA needs to set up its own LLC that it owns. And then it can transfer funds into that LLC and go do investing in real estate or what have you. Mm-hmm. But you do not want to take some other outside LLC that we set up for you and connect that with your IRA. We're not allowed to do that. Yeah, I would say talk to us before you do anything else because you don't need two IRA accounts with the same custodian unless you're separating those funds in the event that you uh, are engaged in anything that's in a gray area and you don't want to disqualify a certain portion of those funds which then I would encourage you to be doing a 401k so you don't have to worry about that. Uh, and you could have a 401k that opens up at TD Ameritrade, soon to be Schwab because they got purchased and they're making everything go to Schwab. But let's just say that you, you did a 401k to Schwab, then it doesn't matter. You could have all your accounts in that same Schwab ac- account. And uh, if you ever had a disallowed transaction and it doesn't disqualify the entire IRA account, like what happened if it's an IRA, if it's a 401k, it would only be those particular funds. There's lots of little reasons why one account might be better than another, but I would actually say talk to somebody so we know what you're going to do with it to make sure you do not step on a landmine. There's no reason we're here to answer your questions, and we will make sure that you're that you're in the black and white. We don't even want gray. Speaking of black and white, go to the YouTube channel, check it out, and listen to the videos. I just talked to you about one that was with Stefan Whitwell. Patty, if you have that, maybe maybe see if you can't find the one from Stefan. Are you guys worried about the banks? I'm worried about the banks, and I'm worried about losing money. FDIC insurance is neat and dandy, but I don't even know how much it's going to cover. If somebody says, do you 
think that if Russia changes its rules, what will happen to the dollar? It's yeah. There's a lot of folks worried about the the U.S. dollar being the uh, the currency for oil, which is a big one. But I'm not so worried about that right now. As as much as I am worried about the fact that we're sitting on banks that bought bonds that have no fair market value and they can't do anything with it. So hopefully the Fed will say, hey, we, you can borrow up to 100% of the face of that bond. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's looking a little, bit, a little bit ugly. I have two 401ks, ex-employers and two traditional. What would be the best advice to merge or not to merge? I would merge them. You could have one account for those. 401k, I would put them yep. in there, but you can't have solo 401k better yet. So you don't have mm-hmm. the U, UDFI that we were talking about earlier if you're going to go into that. Yep. So, hey, Patty, could you find that video from, from Stefan? Because Stefan's great. He's a money manager. He's a CFP. So he's a fiduciary. Known him for years. He was partners with a, uh, it's up in Linto. Good. He's partners with David McShane, who helped me conceptualize and put together Infinity Investing. David passed away during COVID, unfortunately, and Stefan and I still maintain a relationship, but he's really wicked smart. Wharton School of Business guy uh, knows this stuff. And he came on and we did a, about a 30 minute and he explains the different types of insurance on different accounts and all that good stuff. So by all means, give yourself a little break. Oh. Mm-hmm. And once you realize that certain accounts, you're not at risk, you can go, yes, I'm not too worried about that. And then if all your money is in a regional bank, you can freak out, run around in circles and go, what the hell am I doing? Uh, and we can make sure that we are uh, keeping your exposure to a minimum. And I just say that, like, I'm worried about banks. Yeah. But uh, you know what I'm wor- worried about? Your taxes and making sure you get to keep what you own. You guys are better stewards of your money than any government. And so anything we can do to help keep that money in your pocket, we will do legally. We don't do the the illegally stuff, but we do like to do the black letter and make sure that you guys are keeping it in your pocket. A lot of that is uh, is a lot of common sense and just making sure that you're having somebody look at it that actually knows what they're doing. If you guys have any questions during the next two weeks, uh, Tax Tuesday at Anderson Advisors. We don't charge for this. It's not a surprise bill. And you could always go to our website. There's a host of information. And then I sh- I'd be remiss to say we have my YouTube channel, but also Clint, my partner, does a really great job. He's more focused on asset protection. I tend to be more focused on tax. But uh, we are a team here. Speaking of team, not only is Elliot awesome sitting in for Jeff, who uh, has just been dealing with with, with a, a host of personal stuff, which uh Hopefully we get him back. Yes. No offense, but uh, yeah, no. Looking forward to getting him back. Love, love Jeff, but uh, Elliot's been awesome. So we get a round of applause for Elliot. But mm-hmm. also, you have Dana, Dutch, Jared, Kurt, Ross, Sergey, Tanya, and Troy answering questions both on YouTube and in Zoom. And I'm telling you, it's the middle of tax season, and these guys are taking time out of their busy schedules to just go in and answer your guys' questions. So I hope you guys realize how unique and special that is. And those guys all get a big star for doing that because uh, it's selfless. So I just want to say thanks, guys. They probably don't hear it enough. People are always angry at their accountants, right? There's a bunch of thank yous. So hopefully they're seeing that. But I appreciate the fact that uh, it is March and you have tax people taking their yeah. time off to answer questions. Try uh, that with your own CPA. Yeah, if, you, if, you, if they'll return <laughs> your call, right. maybe in May. Anyway, uh, thanks for being here. Great to be here. Thank you, guys. I see that there was over 225 questions answered mm-hmm. in writing. There's still some open. So what I'm going to do is Ellie and I will, will disappear. We'll keep this open uh, so that you guys can answer your, get the answers uh, that you need, your questions answered. We will not stop until we've answered all the questions, but stop asking questions so that they can go home. <laughs> all right. So And that will be it. So uh, if there's nothing else. That I want to say thanks for joining us at Tax Tuesday. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 